Where are you in your leadership journey? Designed to inspire and empower other ambitious individuals, the Mindful Rebel podcast series is designed to bring attention to grassroots leaders in our community and focus on where they are currently in their leadership journey. The podcast will share the advice of doers and thinkers demonstrating success in life and in their respective areas of impact. I'm pleased to announce that the Mindful Rebel podcast is brought to you now by Gamefly.com. Sign up for a free 30-day trial specifically for my listeners at GameFlyOffer.com slash MindfulRebel. That's GameFlyOffer.com slash MindfulRebel. Welcome to the Mindful Rebel podcast, the podcast about journeys and leadership. In this episode, we'll talk to Dewan Patterson, Executive Director of the Be More Group, a company dedicated to providing services and solutions to issues surrounding youth, family, and underserved communities. Welcome, Dewan. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. And, you know, it's even better that you're a fellow Bulldog from Bowie. So, you know, it's always great to highlight the excellence coming from home. So, yeah. And one thing I always tell um, tell my students and out in the community, make sure they know it's two times over Bulldog. Hey. <laughs> so as we hop into the interview, um, there, there was, you know, in looking at the, the information you submitted, particularly in, in your bio, there was a term that you used that's, um, a social impact consultant, and I, I like that term. So what prompted you, did you coin that? Is that a term you coined? Yes. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about what that means and how did you, what prompted you to start work around being a social impact consultant? Well, that's, that's a great, great question. I did not always realize that I was doing that work of a social impact consultant. One thing I did know is I wanted to make sure that anything I do had a social impact component to it. And so while in undergrad, I I did two things at the same time. During my academic career, I studied psychology because I loved the psychology, having the, the social worker and the understanding of behavior science and making an impact on youth violence and aggression. But while I was there, I knew that I was a businessman first. And what I wanted to do was do my charity, my social impact work, get my degree and studies in that. And while there, I would create my business. And I had a series of business going into it, but it, it didn't happen into like graduate school mm-hmm. and I made a pivot. I was studying um, counseling at the graduate level at George Mason University. But then it dawned on me after completing my first year. Yes, I had like a 3.8 GPA, but I started to ask myself, what level of impact will I have with a social work degree? Yeah, on average, it's about 40 to 50 clients and people a year. But I believe that I need to have a deeper impact. Mm-hmm. And for and the way to have a deeper impact, it would take for me to start to impact and influence policies. I had to examine institutional change. It was really important. So um, I was taking contracts at institutions and I was driving their policy. I was increasing access to higher education for underserved communities. Then I, I went off to create tech tech programs for underserved communities such as teaching robotics and introduce robotics program to Baltimore City Schools. 
But then I learned that I can also get a profit, generate a profit, and deliver on my passion. And my passion was to create social impact. So what better way to do it than to advise people on delivering social impact and value inside underserved communities. And that's how I came up with the social impact consulting. And that's where I do a lot of my institutional advisement, teaching and advising uh, larger institutions on delivering products and services of quality that have a real significant social impact value to it. So did your your gun violence prevention campaign, did that come from your social impact consultant work? And and if so, why was that, I guess, so important or poignant for communities in Baltimore? Um, going into my gun violence prevention work, I, I did not go public about my gun violence prevention work. Oh, I should say, I didn't go public on why I was so passionate about gun violence prevention. I just wanted to do the work. Mm-hmm. And um, with going and doing the work, I, I realized that it's about time I go public on what contribute to this passion of, of mine. And and once I started to do all of my gun violence prevention work, um, things started to pick up even further. And I started to examine that there are multiple solutions to address gun violence. So with that, I guess, how much how much of, you know, Baltimore has been in the spotlight in the last few years, you know, particularly around issues of, you know, contention with the police, um, you know, particularly, you know, looking at the Freddie Gray case and, and how that kind of perpetuated Baltimore in the, into the spotlight, um, as well as other cities around the nation who, who are dealing with similar um, issues. Um, did that case affect that level of work that you did or did that add more weight to it? Um, when the Freddie Gray case and the uprising happened, I was, I was already finishing, finished my master's degree in public policy and management, but I was living outside of Baltimore and I was part-time doing the work that I do now. But when the uprising happened, it channeled something inside of me. It asked me, am I doing enough? Mm. And should I return back to Baltimore and do this work full time? At the time, I didn't. I was content with living outside of Baltimore, living a good life, and traveling, being excited, and only doing the work part time. But when the moments of the uprising happened back in Baltimore, I had friends and colleagues Facebook message me, um, text message me, email me, and ask me what was happening inside my city. Mm. And that happened from around the world, around the nation, that people did not know about what was going on in Baltimore. So I felt like I had an obligation to return to Baltimore and represent the people and and own and shape the stories of Baltimore because I noticed that the stories were being exploited. The narrative was being exploited. Absolutely. So I I felt like that was was important and um, it was a real pivotal moment for me it was because Kendrick Lamar's um, To Pimp a Butterfly was the current uh, CD at the time that was out. And uh, it was a point inside his messaging in the video, uh, in the music 
they asked me, he's asked me, was I using my influence for good? And it was a, the, the, the track was Immortal Man. Yep. And it was actually like, am I misusing my influence? So I started to look at myself like, was I misusing my influence and my gifts? And from that moment on, I went back in inside Baltimore because I was experiencing same symptoms of Kendrick Lamar, a survivor's guilt. I made it out. But there are many other people inside Baltimore and communities like Baltimore that did not make it out. So I was compelled to um, make a difference at a larger, larger stage. So I think that's a good transition in looking at the HBCU Matters movement. So for, for some of the listeners who may not necessarily be um, privy to what's going on in Maryland right now um, around um, our HBCUs that are there, can you can you give a little context to what's going on now with the HBCU Matters movement? Yes, with the HBCU Matters movement, we're currently in the third phase of Remedy. Um, the State of Maryland Higher Education Commission was found in violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1965-6-2013-Federal-Court-Judge-Blake-Ruled-That-The-Higher-Education-Commission-Was-In-Violation-Of-Such-Acts-Of-Racial-Segregation-And-Unnecessary-Duplication-Of-Higher-Education-Program
some of this segregation here uh, here in Maryland. So we're demanding that we increase funding to historical black college and university to make them compatible with the traditional white institutions across Maryland. And thank you for providing such a, a detailed context to what is is actually happening in Maryland. And and you're right. You know, there's you know I've done a little research on it, and then this is this is not a issue that's isolated to Maryland. You know, Cheney went through something similar. It's happened in South Carolina. There there are tons of HBCUs who are dealing with with a similar issue around you know other institutions having having those kind of specialized programs that are pulling away from from the institution itself. So thank you for being able to provide that kind of context. So, so in being involved in this movement, like what have you learned from this process? Um, maybe even about yourself, maybe about you know activism in general or looking at this next generation. What have you learned from this particular process? First thing I learned um, was to be a strong leader, you have to not only be fearless, you have to be persistent and consistent, dedicated to the cause and issues that go beyond your time and yourself. I started this HBCU Matter uh, movement last January 2016 when I received a phone call from one of my um, Bowie State University professor, undergraduate professor, and she requested me to speak at a rally down in Annapolis uh, Maryland's capital, addressing HBCU lawsuit. And I was shocked because I was like, hey, I thought this been was resolved. And she said, no. And when I got down to Annapolis, I realized there was small numbers. We didn't really have our legislative black caucus, our black legislators from the state present. Students wasn't involved. Uh, administration from the universities wasn't involved. So I made it my obligation to call out and ask people where they stand on this issue and how come there's a media blackout? No one's talking about it, no one knows. And as a result of that, um, I spoke for five minutes on the radio. Someone picked it up and got behind me and sponsored a whole 90-minute segment where I was the executive producer and organizer of a 90-minute town hall addressing HBCUs and the issue of the lawsuit. Wow. And from from that point, I organized um, students from all four of the HBCUs in Maryland. I had alumni, I had lawyers, I had professors, and people from the coalition of HBCUs. And from that moment, I called out, this was 2015, so it was going in, um, this was 2016, so it was going into the one-year anniversary of the Baltimore Uprising. So I closed out that radio segment and demanding the listeners and community members to call their local legislators and their state legislators, as well as the governor, and ask them where do they stand? And will they continue to tell us and show us that black lives doesn't matter, but also black institutions that serve underserved communities do not matter. And if we continue to do that, then who's to say we will not see another uprising? That radio segment ended at 9.50 by 1.27. The Lieutenant Governor of Maryland called the radio and said, can we retract our statement because they were committing, they were recommitting $1.7 million to Morgan State University, $1.3 million to Coppin State University, and they would give half of the money, that was, half of the $24 million 
that was taken away from Baltimore City Public Schools, and they would give $20 million, $12 million to Baltimore City, and the city would have to come up with the rest. So understanding that it takes fearlessness and commitment to really drive about the change is something I learned early on. Then the next thing I learned from the lawsuit was sometimes the people who we think are our elected officials or appointed leaders, just because you have the title doesn't make you a leader. Has this made you think about, you know, politics from another lens outside of like, you know, politicians get a bad rap in general. And, and you know, you can look at it from both sides. It's like maybe it's due that they need a bad rap just by the nature of, you know, not holding up to what their constituents need. Um, then you look on the other side of the lens is that there's a lot of red tape in politics. So has this made you look at politics from a different perspective or a different lens or um, has that um, changed much? A combo. By me studying and working on Capitol Hill, I kind of understand how politics work. And there are trade-offs, but also it comes with pressure. Many people are disengaged with politics because they believe that their vote and their voice do not matter. Yes, we constantly hear that within our community and a lot of um, underserved communities. But what I learned from working on Capitol Hill is, it's not that your voice or your vote do not matter. It is strength in numbers. You have to show a strong collective bargaining stance. And once you do that, your voice is heard and you apply the pressure. So from my stake of um, being involved in this perceived matters from the political side of it, it takes us to hold the politicians accountable and show them that the community do care. And if we don't, then um, one thing I learned is higher education stopped being a public good. A long, a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. And I did not understand that until I started to research it, understand it in my public policy thing. And what I learned was to make the connection is if you the more educated you are, the more you read. The more reading you do, then the more civically engaged you are. The more civically engaged you are, that means there's a larger population that will hold the public officials accountable. So the more you know, the more aware you are, the more responsibility the public official have. So public official benefit from having an ignorant base because there's no one to hold them accountable. So for me, my goal is to educate the community. Therefore, they can also be their own uh, advocates and holding people accountable, and we'll, which we will see now politicians will move. As a result from this, we have over 30 state delegates in support of the HBCU bill, Senate Bill 712. And it did not even move out the committee yet. So this is really big. So people are understanding that there's pressure and people care about this issue. So for us, we are showing them that you matter. It just takes us for actually stepping up. And if I could, if I could add one more thing, sure, is it's not only on the politicians. It falls on our community leaders and organizations. We have national organizations that are supposed to advocate for our issues on behalf of the community, but they also are bought out by corporate interests. 
Therefore, they do not push back on some of the things that can benefit the community. So it's up to the community to push back on these national and local organizations who are standing on the sideline being silent when it comes to the policies that benefit our community. And that's one of the things that I learned, that it takes people who are in the known and not necessarily a person who have a leadership title, official title, but as a person is willing to take the charge to be a leader is what makes the difference. And people will follow with intention, intentionality. So you touched on this in, in your, your previous answer, but you know, an important component of activism is capacity building the folks around you. So that you know, at a certain point, they're able to kind of take the mantle and help continue the movement or the, or the momentum of the movement. Um, so, in what ways do you build capacity of, uh, around of those folks that are around you, um, in particular around this HBC movement, um, HBC Matters movement? Yes, uh, capacity building and delegation is really big for me. That that empowerment piece. So, in February. 20, February the 21st, 2017, we organized four schools for one cause around HBC uh, Matters issue. We had over 500 students and alumni on site within three days. We had five buses actually being chartered to come to Baltimore on this issue. And when you talk about capacity building, I strategically identify all of the leaders at each one of the institutions, provide them with the best practices and the resources as well as the technical support for them to lead their community from where they are. And that's how you do it. It's like educate them, provide people with the tools and the support, how you build capacity because we only have 24 hours in a day. There's only so much we can do. So it's up to leaders to build more leaders. And you do that by um, providing with the, the guidance, the technical support, and the resources so they could be sufficiently empowered. So thinking about, you know, Maryland HBCUs, they, you know, in general, have a wide net of alumni around the country. So how would you suggest folks um, get involved who may want to get involved to make an impact with the HBC Matters movement, whether they're local or not? One thing that I will say is reach back to your alumni association in your university. Ask them where do they stand on this issue that's happening in the courthouse and inside the state capitol. Once you get that, get official commitments on their stance. Hold them accountable because then you need to ask the students, are they being supported? What I've learned through my organizing with the HBCU Matter movement, many of the alumni associations are not supporting, well, they were not supporting students on this issue. I had to apply the pressure publicly to get people to act. So I'm calling out all HBCU alumni, and even members who did not reach or did not go to, uh, who did not attend HBCU to ask where do universities and state officials stand on this issue? Ask some of your national organizations. Do you support a HCU equity case in Maryland? Hmm. It's something as simple as that, holding people accountable and driving some resources. 
back inside those HBCUs. Asking how you can you can help with your talents or even your, your resources from where you are. So if you're a writer, ask can you help construct a, a petition, a phone bank for the students uh, or the community members. So with that, what and, and there's one other piece that I wanted to kind of pull in. Um, you know, I like to talk with with my guests about like resources that they they read or utilize that kind of help keep them motivated as leaders in their in their respective fields. So, are there any resources that you that that help with your own personal development that that you would suggest to other folks? Um, first and foremost, I always talk about self care. Um, Taking the time out to take care of yourself is really important as being a leader because you're no service to anyone if you're not in good condition to be of service. Um, next thing that I do is, um, and I always work inward, outward. So um, when we talk about resources, I'm focusing on self first, and I'll get the listeners to focus on yourself first, and then you go out there. So meditation and taking time for yourself is big. And once you finish that self-reflection, self-care, um, I read daily. Uh, and I diversify my reading. I do business journal readings that help me ground it inside the business community what's happening because the business community drives policy. And policy uh, drives community decision and community life. So uh, I examine the local business journal, I examine political Hill and the local newspaper. And then also, since we're in the era of social media, I diversify people I follow. Some people who are not in my immediate network, who's not a part of my immediate geographical circle. And reason being because you start to learn about the world around you. And it's really important. Then from there, I identify those topics and start to research from there. And um, the final thing is I'm always reading. Ask people what what are some book suggestions that they have. I'm reading a new book at least once a month. So uh, find people who are in the field that you wish to be in and read it. Always invest in yourself. Great, great advice. So with that, this is a part where we kind of transition into uh, our rapid fire questions as we kind of wrap up the interview. So these are just like fun personality based questions. Answer them however you feel. Um, yeah. So what um, what's your what's your favorite childhood memory? Um, wrestling. <laughs> OK. Uh, uh, it was when WWE, WWE, formerly known as WWF, was out. Uh, I constructed my own wrestling belt. And I was running around the courtyard, slapping people in the head with the belt, and <laughs> we was doing wrestling moves on each other. So that's one of my um, favorite childhood memory. Okay. Um, and you got to answer this a little bit, but uh, do you prefer reading books or watching movies? Reading books. Okay. Is there a film? So if, if, if you could, is there a book that you would love to turn into a film? The Reginald Lewis story. Okay. Well, actually, white guys have all the fun. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite um, song or album 
or artists. You can answer either one of any of those three. But what's your favorite one, uh, song, album, or artist? Favorite song was both. Favorite artist is Jay Z. The favorite song is Can I Live. Okay. Can I Live? All right. All right. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. All right. Um, <laughs> if you could travel anywhere right now, where would it be and, and why would you choose that location? Probably Thailand. Okay. And the reason being um, because I wanted to travel to some of the the temples and up inside the mountains. Since I'm so accustomed to always operating at a high function brain capacity moments, um, I wanted to take the time off to actually mellow out and just be at peace and be present and not worry about the hustle and bustle. And that would be great. <laughs> that that's that's a that's a trip that's on my my list that I have to make. I have to make. Yes, <laughs> yes, big to me. Um, and then as we wrap up with the interview, um, this is the question I ask all my guests. Um, at the end of the day, what would you like to be known for? I would like to be known as a man who lived on purpose. And with that being said, it's tied into my purpose, which is to educate and inspire people to live a full, intentional life. Hmm. But people will be self-empowered, self-efficient, and operate in their higher self hmm. of righteousness and peace. Well, Dewan, listen, thank you for taking the time today. Um, for enlightening us on, on the work, the great work that you're doing um, in Baltimore to help um, help people self-actualize and become them, their best selves and, and really digging in and, and helping out um, the communities there. Somebody from Baltimore, man, I appreciate it. And it's, it's great to see um, someone that looks like us doing that kind of work. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. And as uh, my hashtag goes, let's be more together. Cool. So for more information about Dewan and the work that he's doing, that will be posted along with the podcast, along with his website and his social media handles. Um, thank you for listening to the Mindful Rebel podcast. Um, please stay tuned for our next exciting episode. Stay connected on your leadership journey with the Mindful Rebel podcast by visiting themindfulrebel.co, following the show on Instagram at Mindful Rebel Podcast, and subscribing to the Mindful Rebel on the iTunes podcast app. Remember, the podcast is for you, so if you have questions about leadership that you want to hear discussed or you're interested in contributing to the show, feel free to share at themindfulrebel.co.